thank you, thank you. Bible. I like it. Bible study time. I love it. And I love, uh, <clears throat> I love learning the story of the Bible. And uh, you'll note uh, maybe in your bulletin, is it on the screen? It's not on the screen yet what the title is. The God of All Details. And hopefully in the next few minutes you'll understand why I've entitled the sermon The God of the Details of All Details. What do you mean by details? Well, um, the theological explanation for the God of all details, the theological word is called God's providence. God's providence. And um, I, I, I want to put a definition of providence in front of you as we, we begin the book of Exodus because today I want to introduce that topic to you but I don't want that to uh, fade in the weeks to come but I want us to retain this understanding of God's providence. I, I'm picking the Baptist Confession, the London Confession of 1689 which is pretty old I'll admit uh, when it comes to defining things but Take a look at this definition of providence. God, the good creator of all, key word, the God of all things in his infinite, infinite power and wisdom upholds. I know what some of you think, and in this case it's not all that bad. Maybe the, the atlas and the holding up of the globe kind of thing, right? He upholds. But not only does he just uphold it, but he directs. So he upholds, he directs, and he arranges. He brings them together. Not only does he do that, but he, he, once he brings them together, he governs all things. Not just the big things, although those are to be included. The greatest to the least how does he do it? He governs according to his infallible. Big word again. That's why it's a theological definition of it. No, I'm not going to unpack this and go through all of this definition. But infallible simply means incapable of error. Infallible. Foreknowledge. That is, his seeing ahead, his foreknowledge, is infallible or incapable of error. What God sees will happen and the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will god is free to do it he's not bound to do it he doesn't have to do it but by his free will he carries out every aspect of his providence his providence leads then why you know what should we do in response to that praise and the glory of his wisdom power justice infinite goodness and mercy this probably is the truth that I was first attracted to as far as Christianity is concerned. This providence that God is not only the creator, but he's the sustainer. He upholds, he directs, he governs. God is completely in charge. And I don't know about you, but that brings me great security, great comfort. The rock of our salvation never changes. Look back again at the beginning of that then. God, the good creator of all things in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, 
arranges, governs all creatures and things from the greatest to the least. We're going to see that particularly in these opening chapters, but um, I want to make sure that you, you don't forget that as we move forward. I want to do something by way of introduction as far as preaching is concerned, as far, as far as teaching is concerned, when it comes to this kind of literature in the Bible. So I want to say that again so that you tune me in to what I'm saying right now. I want to talk a little bit behind the curtain, so to speak, about preaching and teaching. And when I talk about preaching and teaching the Word of God, when it comes to this kind of literature. Pastor, what do you mean, this kind of literature? Well, I know that, that what we're going to read in Exodus, at least when I turn over to places like Job and Psalms and Proverbs, that it's different. Even in my Bible, I see that the way these editors have put it into this Bible, it looks different. And in fact, it is. In Job and Psalms and Proverbs, primarily what we're looking at is poetry. We're looking at poetry. If I were to flip again big time in my Bible, I might come to the prophets and see that the literature there, although it does have some story, is prophetic. There are a lot of symbols, in, aren't there? There are a lot of different things going on in prophetic literature that we don't see in whatever is going on in Exodus. What is going on in Exodus? The kind of literature in Exodus is called narrative or story or historical narrative. It's telling us a story that happened long ago. So it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And when it comes to preaching or teaching historical narrative, we need to understand how God uses that in the Bible. I'm not going to do this long. This is, this is quick, but I, I want you to lay hold of this. The Bible uses historical narrative in two related ways. They're not disconnected. They're very much connected. Two related ways. One is examples, and the other is a part of God's redemptive story. How does God... All right, let's be clear. How does God later in the Bible use a story that's back here do we just simply say well we read a story it's a nice story and, and just go on our way i mean I, I don't know it's just story in the bible no how does the bible teach you and me how to use stay with me how to use stories in the bible if the bible is our ultimate authority we want to look to the bible to tell us how to use the bible and the Bible uses historical narrative story in two related ways. One as example. And the other, he uses us to teach us things in the big picture. Teaches us things in the big picture of his redemptive story. That is the case with Exodus. Exodus is used in both of these ways. One for our example and two, to show us more, to tell us more about God's big picture, his big redemptive story. That's how Exodus is used. Uh, this morning, I'm only going to briefly uh, exemplify the first one on example. I know that's redundant. But I'm only going to do it briefly. We're going to see that more and more as we go through the chapters of Exodus. As we go through it, we're going to see more and more examples. 
But this morning, I just want to illustrate that kind of preaching or teaching point by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm not going to teach it, but I'm quickly turning over in my Bible to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, here in the New Testament, someplace, here we go, there it is, and in chapter 10. Now listen, in fact, this is probably the most explicit place that we get this principle about preaching and teaching. Say it again. Well, this principle about the fact that stories are given to us for our example, this verse, this passage right here, is probably the clearest in all of the Bible making that point. Here we go. For I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Now, you may not know what that cloud is right now, but we're going to learn about that cloud. <clears throat> that they were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. You may not know what the sea that they're talking about, but we're going to see that in Exodus. And all were baptized into Moses. Okay, he's in Exodus. In the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were in the wilderness. Verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. You see, right there, Paul, wait, look how much Bible goes from there. All that Bible has transpired, and yet Paul is looking back to the Exodus, and he's saying that the Exodus was given to us, the first Corinthians, and to us, Boyntonians, I like saying that now that I've learned it, that it's given to us as example. That's the first reason. You might, um, as many pastors relate to their congregations when they start a series on Exodus, you might be sitting there and what, what are we doing Exodus for? I mean, you know, what's the big deal about Exodus? I mean, we got parting of the Red Sea and some Ten Commandments and stuff. I mean, what, 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 do we, I mean, what does Exodus have to do with me? And Paul is explicitly telling us, there's stuff in here that's to be an example to us. To be an example to us. This morning, I want to spend more time on the second kind of related aspect in teaching and in preaching historical narrative, and, and that's on God's big plan. And I want to reinforce that as a God of all details, the God of, of providence, here in this chapter 1 and chapter 2, of Exodus and show you that what God is doing in, here it is now, what God is doing in this moment, God has brought so many things together. Remember that definition of providence. He gathers them together. He upholds them. He governs them. He directs them. God is doing so much in bringing this together that we ought to stand back in, in, in amazement, in praise to his glory and to his majesty. So let's take a look at this second aspect, Exodus, as a part of the big plan. Um, and I'd love to read the two chapters. I'm not going to do that. But you see here in the opening chapter, these are the names 
of the children of Israel. Now, the historical context, right? Genesis, creation, fall, flood, tower, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers down to Egypt. Sold into slavery, but found favor in the eyes of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, because he could interpret dreams. And Pharaoh had a dream, and no one else could interpret it. Only Joseph, and Joseph came out, and Joseph indeed gave glory to God. No, I'm not, it's not me, but it's God who can give the interpretation. And because Joseph was used by God and found faithful by God, God raised him up to be in authority over all the grain fields and all the resources of Egypt. In fact, he was the number two man in all of Egypt. And then a famine took place, both in, in, in Egypt it was coming, but also in Israel. And Joseph knew that his family back in Israel were starving. And they took trips down to buy food. And then eventually Joseph revealed himself to his brothers and said, Brothers, go home, get the entire family, bring them down here to Egypt where I can take care of them. Because I'm the number two man in all of Egypt now, and I'll take care of them. And he brought them down, and he caused them to live in the choicest of land in Egypt. And they prospered there, and they grew there. In fact, that indeed is my first point. When we look at this, and it says these are the names of the people who came down, we get the sons of Israel, that is of Jacob, listed there. But then in verse 6, this is what it says, Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now, if I wanted to be a trickster, try and keep you with me a little bit, be aggravating and, you know, provoking that sort of thing, uh, I might say to you, okay, verse 7. What does verse 7 fulfill? What does verse 7 fulfill? And you knowing your Bible, would quickly turn back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, in which God said to the man and God said to the woman, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go forth. I want you to be, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. And in fact, the language is exactly the same. It's identical to what God told Adam and Eve to do. You think about it when he spoke to, to Abram, Abraham. He said, Abraham, I want you to go out and look at the stars. You know, that's going to be you one day. That's going to be your, your descendants when you look up in there. Now around here in Boynton Beach, you look up and there's so much light and everything going on. You know, we can count about 122 stars up there. Once I was doing a mission work in Papua New Guinea in the South Pacific. There wasn't a light bulb to be had anywhere within like oh, miles and miles and miles. And I went out onto the beach and I looked up and I declare you couldn't throw a stone up there without hitting a star. I mean, it's just filled with canopy of stars. That must be what Abraham saw when he went out there and looked at that. Go forth, be fruitful and multiply. And he did that. And I believe that Moses... Oh, hmm. who wrote Genesis? 
We believe that God appointed Moses, the power of the Holy Spirit, to write the entire Pentateuch, the, the entire five books. And so it was the same human author who penned to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, as it was reporting at what happened to the Israelites in Egypt. Go forward, be free. And they did. They were fruitful and they multiplied. It's a fulfillment of it. In fact, when we get to the New Testament, when we get to the New Testament and we read there of the story of Stephen when he was being stoned in Acts chapter 7, giving this long sermon to people. And you know what he was doing in his sermon? That's why I love these things. Psalm 136 does the same thing. And in several places in Scripture, these preachers, you know what they do? They tell the history of Israel. And, and Stephen, being stoned there in Acts chapter 7, rehearsed the entire history of Israel. And when he got to this place in, in, uh, in uh, Acts 7, 17, and he says, and the children of Israel, when they were in Egypt, they were fruitful and they multiplied. He used the same exact phrase again. And if that's not enough, when I think about, remember what I'm talking about? No, you don't, so we've got to go back and pick it up. Let's go back and pick it up. What Pastor Buzz is talking about is the second use of historical narrative. And that second use of historical narrative is God uses that narrative to demonstrate the big picture. So now when I get to Paul in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 6, and I begin to read Paul thanking God for these Colossians, and you know what was going Forth, watch this now. Do you know what was going forth and increasing and multiplying in the first chapter of Colossians? The gospel of Jesus Christ. The same exact phrase from Genesis 1.28 to right here in Exodus to Psalm 136 to Acts chapter 7 to Colossians chapter 1. And the gospel went forth from you and increased and multiplied big picture there's stuff in here number two under that same heading would be this there is no more frequently used phrase say it again no more frequently used phrase in all of the bible than some form of out of egypt i brought you out of egypt i brought i am the god who brought you out of Egypt. I am the God by my mighty and strong outstretched arm and the one who brought you out of Egypt. And the Bible repeats it over and over and over again about the different attributes and uses different reasons for why God said this throughout it. Sometimes it's just simply to show his power, to say I'm strong enough and the reason that you ought to believe that I'm strong enough is because I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. Other times he uses it to demonstrate his faithfulness, his character when he says you can trust me into the future because I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. This phrase right here is the most frequently used phrase in all of the Bible. God uses it of himself. And so once again, not only did he say be fruitful and multiply, and I see that throughout the picture, but I also see throughout the picture 
that God repeats it over and over and over again to demonstrate that he's the same God in Exodus as he was in the poetry, his same God who's in the prophets, where he also does, the same God in the New Testament. All the way through all of the genre, all of the literature, God reminds the children of Israel that I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. You say, Pastor, now I go back because I want to keep you with me. I go back. Well, Pastor, why are you, why are you, why are you doing Exodus? Why are you doing Exodus? I mean, I know it's a lot of story. I like that kind of story. You know, the chief number one reason we're doing Exodus? Because God is there. God is there. God's revealing himself there. Yeah, I know Moses is a main character, but Moses is not the main character. God is the main character. And he testifies of it not only in Exodus, but all through the scriptures. So first of all, I would say that in seeing the big plan, you see it in his words. You see it in the before plan. I know that's not good English, but I'm putting it in front of you anyway. Not only do you see it in the words, but you also see it in the before plan. So when I go back to the before and I get to Genesis chapter 15, in that wonderful passage 5 and 6, where the Bible does say that Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. That's wonderful in chapter 15. But a little bit later in chapter 15, in verse 13, this is what it says. When Abram had fallen asleep, God showed him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. God said that to Abraham well before, as a part of, may I say, as a part of the covenant, as a part of the covenant affirmation. Yes, he shows him his covenant. He says, Abraham, you're going to be a father of many great uh, nations. Your name is going to be blessed. I'm going to give you a land. And as if we were to say, and listen, he doesn't actually say this, so I'm treading on some thin ice here. But as if to say, Abram, it's not always going to look like that. It's not always going to look like that. In fact, if you knew the text, it doesn't look like that right now. I, when, when Abram went out there and looked at the stars and said, wow, you know what he did next? He went in and he told Sarah, his wife, is it you know what God said? God said, you see those stars? You're going to have that many kids. And Sarah's response? You know, I don't know what you've been smoking there, bud. No, she didn't say that. Sorry. You know, she laughed. No. Questioned. Questioned that. Abram, it's not always going to be that way because your people are going to go out and they're going to be persecuted for 400 years. You see... God is demonstrating. It's good. I've already done it. See, what are you doing, Pastor? Let me tell you what I'm doing. I, I said that we're looking at Exodus being a part of the big picture, and I just did some words. I did go back to Genesis and tie that in, but most of it was forward. Most of it was forward. This is what God is doing in the future, multiplying, you know, out of Egypt, right? But here, he said, now, before you just get going too far, I want you to know, I knew it before it happened. I foreknew. Remember the definition? By his infinite foreknowledge. 
And it wasn't just foreknowledge that I know that it will happen. I have appointed it to happen. I have directed it to happen. You say, wow, wait a minute. Slavery, 400 years. A lot of people die. That's not the, that's not the kind of God I know. That's not the kind of God I'm very comfortable with. My friends, there are difficult things in the Bible. I don't want to just you know, spout off and, and uh, articulate you know, in, in some level of dramatic ignorance, well, you don't trust the God of the Bible kind of language. I'm with you. There are things in the Bible that are difficult. There are things in the Bible that are challenging. And yet they are the words of God and the God of the word. And God has appointed that. Do I understand all his reasons? I do not. I do not. But I trust in the providence of God. And this is what he did in saying that he would do it in advance. Finally, though, in this looking at this historical narrative as God using it not only for example that we just briefly set aside, but also in demonstrating to us the big picture. Why? So that we would trust the big picture and we would look at it. Do you know what I found when I went through these verses? One after another, through chapter 1 and chapter 2. You say, well, what's there? Well, certainly, they were oppressed in Egypt, right? They did grow, but when the Pharaoh looked and saw how many they were, he said, these people are getting out of control. Why, if we get attacked by an enemy and, uh, and these people might join our enemy and they would defeat us, there's too many of them. We need to get control of them. And, and so he appointed these taskmasters over them and, and they would build their cities as slaves for them and they, they abused them. Absolutely no question about that. And the people were grieved and they called out, God, you're the God who said you would deliver us. And the next scene we, we get these... Uh, midwives who were supposed to come in and kill all the males and that's the way we're going to control the population but that didn't work and midwives had to go back to pharaoh and pharaoh said what's the deal here you guys are not doing your job and the midwives are looking at him like listen these women are not just your ordinary women i mean they are strong before we get there they've delivered and it's not our fault and then in chapter 2, the Bible says that a Levite man went and took a Levite woman, and, and they had a child. And when the child was three months old, they couldn't hide him any longer. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Well, let's make a little ark. I like that part. It's not really all that important. But when his parents put together this basket that you call it, it's a mini ark. It's the same description as Noah's ark. And put him inside that like that. And, and the sister followed him down the river. I don't know how long until Pharaoh's daughter came out. You know the story. And she said to a servant, go down and bring it back. Open it up. Oh, it's a baby. And then sister comes in and says, hey, you want me to go call somebody who can nurse the baby? And she says, sure. And so who did she go get? She went and got her mom. <laughs> the, the baby's mom, that is. And her mom, for that matter. And, and nursed him until he, he went into Pharaoh's household and he grew up strong. And then one day he was going out and, and there, was a, there was an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, just welled up inside him. The book of Hebrews later in the New Testament says that Moses despised the lifestyle of the Pharaoh's house and clung to the life of being a Jew. And so when he saw this 
uh, Hebrew being beaten by the Egyptians. Well, he struck him, didn't he? We've all seen the cartoon. Okay, I know. I don't have time to do that. You've seen it. And out of Egypt. And, and so he struck him, and then he hit him in the sand. The next day he goes out there. There's uh, two Hebrews fighting. He says, what's going on, guys? You know, do you not have enough trouble with the Egyptians beating you and inflicting you that you, you're treating one another like this? He looks at him and he says, oh, who made you judge over us? And then it came to Moses. Moses said, wow, the word is out. The word is out. If I don't get out of here. And so he leaves. This is all still in chapter 2. He leaves and he crosses the Sinai Peninsula over into the land of the Midianites. And there he's by a well. And, and here are these uh, shepherds here. And then these gals who come in to water their camels. And the shepherds shoo the gals away. And Moses is kind of upset about that and so he takes care of the shepherds and proves them out of the way and, and brings the women in so that they can water their camels and, and they go on their way they go back and they tell dad dad says how did you get back here so fast and they said well a man helped us he got rid of the shepherds so we could water our flocks and um and 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 the dad looks at him and says well, where is he why are you just let him wander around the desert why didn't you bring him here so i brought him here and the Bible says that the prince of Midianites gave him a daughter and he married Zipporah and he was married. Well, Pastor, I know all that. Well, I mean, <laughs> why'd you do all that? Do you know that when I went through line by line in these chapters, now watch me on this because I, 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 I'm, I'm happy to be called on the carpet on this one. So details here. If I take, if I take all 70 of, if I take all 70 of the Israelites who moved from Israel down to Egypt as one person, not 70, but just one. If I take all the midwives as just one person, not multiple. If I take all the Egyptians as just one person, stay with me. If I take all of the Hebrews who by now might multiply into the millions, and I count them just as one person, are you with me? All of these groups of people, I'm only counting as one person each. And then I count up all the other names and all the other representatives. There are over 50, 50 persons. And again, I'm counting some of those as just one. So obviously I could be in the millions. But I'm counting each one of those as just one. That there are over 50 different citations of different people in these two chapters. Over 50 citations of different people in these two chapters. Okay, Pastor, I got that the first time you said it. What's your point? My point is the providence of God. Pick one. You want to pick Reuben? You want to pick Jude, Judah? You want to pick one of the midwives? Pick one of the midwives. You want to pick Moses' wife? Pick Zipporah. You want to pick Moses? You want to pick Pharaoh? You want to pick Pharaoh's daughter? I don't care who you pick. Do you, can you possibly fathom all that went in to the lives of every single one of those people to bring it all together in one place at one time to accomplish God's purpose that he's going to talk about throughout the rest of the scriptures? You see, in seeing the big picture, if the exodus is not true, nothing is true. 
wait a minute, Pastor. <laughs> I, 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 haven't, I haven't read about Jesus in Exodus. You will. You, you stay with me and we'll look at God's redemptive plan in Exodus. But what I'm saying to you is, back in the providence, of, he's the God of the details. Do you realize how much had to happen in the life of everybody? For, pick something big. What usually happens in the Nile when little babies go swimming? I mean, there's crocodiles out there. There are things that you and I can think of. Wow, boy, I think about that. God really did a big thing in making sure those crocodiles didn't eat Moses. and The you know, whole, whole story would have been naught. And I'm trying to say to you, that's a big example. There are thousands of examples of every one of the 50, let alone the millions, that God put all together. You say, well, you're reading that backwards. In the weeks to come, you are going to see that the Word of God says... The Word of God aligns. The Word of God depends. Even out of the words of the Lord Jesus, if what happens in Exodus is not true, throw your Bible away. It's all gone. Both theologically and literally in the text of the, of the Bible. Yes, we use it as example. We're going to see more of that. But before we go racing off into the examples, I want us to see what God in the big picture is doing in Exodus. And today is just an introduction to that, for you to acknowledge that, for you to say, yes, God is giving us that gospel that is being fruitful and multiplied. He's giving that to us right here in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right here in the book of Exodus. Right here. And let me also say that if it's not true, nothing's true, that half of it won't work either. This half and half kind of religious thing is not going to get it. You say, well, pastor, um, you, you know, I, I don't know about this detail of this, and I don't know about that particular detail about Exodus. And I will argue to you that a half-and-half half kind of understanding of the providence of God in Exodus, watch me now, half-and-half half dealing with the providence of God in the book of Exodus is exactly what got the people in Exodus in the problems that we're going to see. Later on down the line, I shouldn't do it now, but it's just an illustration, so I make sure it's clear. Later on down the line, they're going to say, what happened to Moses? I haven't seen Moses in about 40 days. I guess he's gone. He's not coming back. And you know what the people did? The people made another idol. They made another idol, and they didn't just make another idol. They didn't just make another idol. They made another idol, and you know what they said about the idol? And this is the God who brought you out of the hand of the Egyptians. They made another idol, and then they said, this is the one that actually did it. They're not, in other words, watch it, in other words, they're not throwing out their religion completely. They're just mixing it a little bit. They're just syncretizing is the word that's used there. And I'm on a little bit of a hobby horse, if you haven't noticed. There are a lot of good things going on in a lot of churches today. Sometimes I, I look at the churches who 
who don't do things exactly the way that we do. And sometimes I see some pretty prosperous churches doing some things differently than the way that we do. I see some churches mixing some things uh, that would attract people to come in. And, and they've got this kind of thing happening for the kids and this kind of thing to attract people in. And, and I'm looking at it and I'm saying... And, and then when they get there, I've actually heard some of these pastors preach the gospel. I mean, pretty close to what I would call the complete gospel. And wow, wow, maybe I need to think about this. Maybe I need to think about this. You know, I don't want to be one of those old fogies, those people who can't change with the times, people who can't be relevant in the world. I don't want to be one of those, you know, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, you know, kind of gruffy old people, you know, boom, like that. I, I want to be with it. And then I think, where is the line? Where is the line? Mike Cosper is a writer for the Gospel Coalition. I recommend that website to you, the Gospel Coalition. Mike Cosper is a, is a, a writer for the Gospel Coalition. And this is what he says about churches and what they're doing and a question you can ask yourself. Is the church gathering for the purpose of robustly forming people is the church gathering for the purpose of robustly forming people with the story of the gospel, with remembering and renewing her covenant with God? And is everything that happens in the gathering serving that end? It's a question you need to ask yourself. Maybe you say you're visiting today. Maybe you're thinking about going and visiting. You've been here a while and eh, it's not really doing it for you. Go to a church and say, is the church gathering for the purpose of robustly forming people with the story of the gospel, with remembering and renewing her covenant with God, and is everything that happens in the gathering serving that end? And quite frankly, some of the gimmicks that are being used today, I can't find the gospel. Let's just get them in the door. Pastor, you already just said when they get there, they do actually get the gospel. And you know what I call that? I call that syncretism. I call that in your notes half and half. That's what they were doing. And you see where that got them, or you will in the next weeks to come. I want to be happy. I want the kids to be happy. I want you to be happy. I want you to be filled with joy about really what counts for eternity. And I want this place to be a place like that. I want to be at a place where they say, we can't, I can't, but he has. I can't save myself. I can't even improve my life. You want me to use these gimmicks so that I can conquer my anger. You want me to use these things so I can have a better marriage. You want to make sure that we can grow our kids up. Very important things. You see, you see, come on, I'm finished. You see, very important things. Are they important? The answer is yes. They're very important things. Does the gospel speak to those things? The gospel does speak to them. But when I win you with a bounce house or a movie theater, what are you going to trust? 
Or if I show you the gospel and say to you that there is no manner in which Jesus has not been tempted, just like you, just like me, but he died on the cross to conquer that, to conquer the challenges I have with my kids, to conquer the challenges I have in my marriage, to conquer the challenges that I have at job or with relationships. Jesus conquered those, and that's where the answer is. And to synchronize that, to take half of the world and half of that, is to make a golden calf and worship it. Today, if you're here and you've got those kinds of challenges, I encourage you to trust in Christ and Christ alone. And it's why I say to you in that final point that we are to see the historical narrative, the story in Exodus, as our only hope because it will unfold Jesus. Father, I pray that you would give us this understanding in your word, that you'd give us your, a zeal for it, that now, after this, we, we, we just want to go home and we want to read through it, and we want to see your hand at work in every line and every word. God, we want to see you so we can exalt your providence in taking every detail of every life and putting it together, even my life, Right now, you are in charge of it, and I give you praise and glory and, and majesty because eventually this story unfolds through you giving your son at that right time, at the fullness of time, and that he lived that perfect life, and that he died that substitutionary <laughs> sacrificial death for me that all of those details yet to come in the future include me in your majesty, in your glory, and in your infinite, perfect will. In Jesus' name, I ask it for these people. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Church. Would you stand? We're going to sing and have a time of response.